Shall we pray together? Our Father, we would ask that you would be our teacher by your spirit and your word. We humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. would invite you to open God's word with me, 1 Corinthians 1. We will also be reading 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 2, and Hebrews 12. The verses are printed for you in the bulletin. On Sunday mornings when I'm filling the pulpit, we're in a series, What is Christ's Church? And as so often the case, we must always first define the terms. What is a biblical concept of church may not be what is the common idea, or we certainly can't use our opinions or feelings to define church. But that's the problem, because the word church is often used, but it's not really defined. So what one person means by church is not another's, and it certainly may not be what the scripture means by church. For some churches just means a building where you go on Sunday. Others use church as synonymous with the, well, that's an organization that you belong to as any other service organization. Other people just use the word church as plural for Christian. So they suppose all you need for church is two or three people in the same place. to, To be a church means nothing more than loving Jesus and loving other people. What does the Bible mean by church? And that's what we've been looking at. First, we looked at how church must be from God's perspective. And we saw there the whole purpose of history is that God is creating a church for the glory of Christ. Then we began looking at the church from our perspective, and we asked, what is a true church? What is a true visible church? And we looked at the three marks of a church church needs a lot more than these three. The church needs evangelism and missions and prayer and diaconal care and mercy and love and fellowship and the list goes on. But these three are the minimum of what is a true church. And they happen to be the three marks of Christ, three offices of Christ. Is Christ the prophet? Is his word faithfully preached? Is Christ the priest? Are his sacraments biblically administered? Is Christ the king? Is his rule consistently applied? The three marks of the church. But when we ask that question, what is the church, there's another way to come at that answer, and that is found in the Nicene Creed. Council of Nicaea began in May 20, the year 325 AD. There were 230 bishops that gathered from the whole Christian church of that time in Nicaea, which is today Turkey. They were responding to false teaching and wrestling with the scriptures, and out of that they composed and wrote the Nicene Creed, which was finally completed in the year 381. And since then, all Christians have professed the Nicene Creed, and we do too. And in the Nicene Creed, there is a line that says, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. These four descriptions are often referred to as the four attributes of the church. Today we want to unpack just two of them. What, does, what do we mean when we say we believe in the church Catholic and the church apostolic? Because those two are going to help us define the other two. I believe in Christ's Catholic 
church. Isn't it common? Maybe it was even your own experience. Person has come to saving faith and maybe coming out of a Roman Catholic background and they come into a, a church like ours, into a Reformed church, and they hear us reciting the creeds and they hear us saying, I believe in the Catholic Church, and they're really puzzled. You say, how can you say that you profess to believe in the Catholic Church, but you're not Roman Catholic? Very confused. Catholic is a Greek word, catholicos, which is taken right into English. It means whole, entire, complete. That word is not used anywhere in the New Testament to describe anything, especially the church. It's not used. However, the adverb is used of that word. It's used in Acts 4.18 where the apostles were rebuked and they were warned not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ at all. That's the word. Not here, not there, not here, not there, not now, not in the future, never at all. It's a word that encompasses both space and time. And so it was very appropriate for the early church to use that as a description of the church. It started quite early. as We have it in the early church fathers describing the church Catholic in the year 112. Because it's a biblical concept. It's a biblical word describing Christ's church Catholic in both of these aspects, time and space. So first of all, when we profess, we believe the church Catholic. It's the church's width throughout space, throughout all nations, a geographic or Catholicity. Look how Paul opens his book, 1 Corinthians 1-2. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sinothenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. What is the church? What's the church in every place? Flip over to chapter 12, 12. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For with one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Jew, Gentile, from all nations, from all places. We're first of all describing church Catholic in her wits. And so the Westminster Confession writes, chapter 25, the visible church, which is also Catholic under the gospel, that is not confined to one nation as it was before under the law, consists of all those throughout the whole world who profess the true religion together with their children, even though you're separated by landmass and geography and cultures. One church through all nations. Well, this is what the Old Testament prophesied would happen in Christ's church, that all nations would be gathered into Christ's church. Foreigners will bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, Isaiah 56. The Lord's house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, not just the exiles of Israel. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you, Zechariah 8 and 22. And we know it's fulfilled in the New Testament. All nations are now being gathered into Christ's kingdom. And so Christ commissioned his disciples go into all the world, to all nations, Matthew 28, 19, even to the very ends of the earth. 
wasn't understood at first. Remember how Peter struggled with this? How can the Gentiles now be included? And he had that struggle over Cornelius. But he had to learn, Acts 10.35, that the Lord accepts men from every nation who fear him. Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. Believing Gentiles are being grafted in along with believing Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, and together becoming a new people, Christ temple from every tribe and tongue and nation. The gospel is to be preached to every creature under heaven, Colossians 1.25, because God is building a church for Christ, which will be a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and language, Revelation 7.9. Christ church Catholic throughout all nations means that the church of Jesus Christ must be open for all people. By definition, the Church of Jesus Christ must be a place of no racism, no party spirit, no tribalism, no caste system, no nationalism, open for all the nations of the world. Christ's Church is Catholic through all nations means that the doors of the Church must be as wide as the arms of Christ. No one who has credibly and sincerely professed faith in Jesus Christ can be denied membership in the Church of Jesus Christ, or that group has become a sect. You cannot add any man-made rules for membership in Christ's church. You can't require to be a member of Christ's church. You have to have a certain position on baptism or a certain position on the millennium or certain issues about Christian liberty. You have now become a sect because Christ's church is Catholic. Christ's church is Catholic means we must never appeal to one group of people to build the church. Church growth has emphasized that, but it's wrong. Church growth is wrong to appeal to one group, whether that's one age group or one demographic or one social, one racial group. Sure, the church might grow faster. Sure. Sure, it would grow faster if everyone looks alike and shops at the same stores, same political party, but it won't be Christ's Catholic Church. It's going to be a subset of the secular culture because Christ's Catholic Church is to reflect all ages, all classes, all peoples, all incomes, all nations. Just over 100 years ago, 1900, 90% of the world's Christians were in Europe or North America. While Christians only composed 9% of the African population and were outnumbered by Muslims 4 to 1. But in just over 100 years, by the year 2000, 75% of the world's Christians lived in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the Pacific. Today, Christians comprise 44% of Africa's population, and in the 1960s, Christians passed Muslims in number in Africa. The same explosive growth is happening in China. Christianity is not only growing among the peasants, it's growing among the social, the cultural establishments, including the Communist Party. At the current rate of growth within 30 years, 
Christians will comprise 30% of the Chinese population of 1.5 billion. There are now more Presbyterians in Ghana, Africa, than in the United States and Scotland combined. There are some 500,000 conservative and reformed Presbyterians in the United States and Canada. But there's a million and a half conservative Presbyterians in Mexico. The second largest missionary sending country in the world today, would you know what it is? It's India. Our denomination, the OPC, has fraternal relations with the Presbyterian Church of Brazil. Some three quarter of a million members. Korea has gone from 1% to 40% Christian in 100 years, and experts tell us the same thing is going to happen in China. If there are half a billion Chinese Christians 50 years from now, that's going to change the course of world history. Catholic is, first of all, the church's width through all nations. But if that's all that it meant, then you could use a synonym, oh, universal. And how often have you used, heard people say that? What does Catholic mean? Oh, universal. No, it doesn't. There is no synonym for Catholic in the English language. Because universal is only focusing on space. Catholic includes time as well. And there is no synonym for Catholic. You just have to use the word and define it. Catholic, first of all, is the church's width through all the nations. But secondly, it's also the church's length through all time. Your sign has commented the church is called Catholic first in respect to place because it's spread over the whole world. It's not tied or restricted to any one place, kingdom, or succession. But then he goes on, and Catholic in respect of time because it will endure through every period of the world of all times. So Catholic means Christ's church, past plus present plus future. Didn't Christ say that he had other sheep yet to be added to his one flock? Look in Hebrews 12. 12.22, what is happening each Lord's Day? Well, the scriptures tell us. Hebrews 12.22, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of angels. Who's joining in our hymns as we sing to the praise of Jesus Christ? The church in heaven. Those who have already died and gone before, they're part of the church as we are part of the church. The church present, church future, church past. John 17, Jesus did not just pray for the church present, 
but church future. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Westminster Confession again, 25, the Catholic Church, which is invisible, consists of all the elect who have been, past, are, or shall be gathered, future, into one under Christ, its head. Because we're guarded by Christ, who's promised to be with us to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. He's promised to build the gates of his, build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. See, because the church is Catholic in respect to time means it must affect our worship. C.S. Lewis coined the phrase chronological snobbery to refer to the tendency to quickly discount what is old and automatically embrace what is new. He writes, we're faddish trend watchers, ignorant of our own history, obnoxiously dismissive of the practices of our spiritual fathers and mothers, and easily duped. That other theologian, Bill Moyer, said, We Americans seem to know everything about the last 24 hours, but very little of the past 60 centuries or the last 60 years. The problem in the evangelical church is the stress on only the contemporary. There's nothing wrong with good contemporary hymns and music. But if you're Catholic, through all time, we need the hymns and the worship from the whole history of the church. Love it when the hymn, our hymnal, at the very bottom of the page, lists the date. Did you notice one of the hymns we sang this morning was from the 7th century? The Church of Jesus Christ has been singing that hymn for over a thousand plus years. That makes me sing louder. And it cuts both ways. The church can't say, well, we're, well, we're only going to sing the old stuff. No. Catholic is all through time. You sing the good stuff. That's another reason why we use creeds, isn't it? To express that we're one part of Christ's one Catholic church through time. The church is Catholic through time is tied back again now to the three marks of the church, the faithful preaching, the biblical administration of sacraments and church discipline. The two are tied together because the Bible only promises that Christ's Catholic Church in time will be preserved as long as she keeps the three marks of a true church. Not all who profess to be a church will be preserved, even if Catholic is part of their name, which is an oxymoron. Or even if they claim to be evangelistic. The great issues of our day are the Catholic issues, as summarized in the creeds of the church. When a televangelist criticizes the Trinity or another televangelist asserts, quote, we are as much the incarnation of God as Jesus was, end of quote, 
You cannot claim to be biblical. You cannot claim to be part of the Catholic Church if you're not maintaining the three marks of the church. There is no church today in Ephesus, but we'll always have the book of Ephesus. The candlestick was removed. God has no obligation to keep a denomination or any particular congregation. North Africa gave us Augustine. What a giant of the church. But there's no established church today in North Africa. God will not, as he did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Romans 11.21 warns you, unless you persevere, you will be cut off. Yes, it's true that true shepherd will never abandon his sheep, but true sheep know the voice of the shepherd and follow him. John 10. So therefore the exhortation of Hebrews 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. I believe in Christ Catholic Church. There's not many faiths, there's not many gospels, there's only one, but there's going to be many saints from Christ through all the nations, throughout all time, who hear and speak God's word together. And secondly, we affirm in the creed, I believe in Christ's apostolic church. And again, there's two aspects to this. To profess to be apostolic is referring to the apostles, the men that Christ chose as his apostles. But secondly, it's also referring to the apostolic teaching. And you need to have both to profess to believe in the apostolic church. So first of all, to believe in the apostolic church refers to the apostles of Christ. Turn back to where we were reading earlier today, Ephesians 2, 19. Two nineteen and 20, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. How often do you think of Christ as the foundation of his church? And that's not entirely false, The scriptures do say there's no other foundation laid than Christ Jesus. And we have the great hymn, Church is One Foundation. But most often in scripture, it's not Christ the foundation, it's the apostles the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. It's referring to the human agents that God is using to build his church. And it's not sufficient to speak of the church only in her divine origin and not mentioning the human origin, the apostles and prophets, any more than it would be to omit the human origin of scripture or the human uh, aspect of even the incarnate person of Jesus Christ. And just as a foundation of a building is only laid once, then that rest in time up go the walls and the roof and the structures and the electricity. And so too, Christ has established his church once upon the apostles and the rest of church history. It's going up now in that structure based upon the apostles. And so the apostles had to be eyewitnesses of Christ. The apostle John writes, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we apostles have heard and which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, our hands have touched. This we're proclaiming the word of life. Peter, the apostle, Acts 10, God raised him on the third day and made him to appear Not to all the people, but to us, apostles, 
who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So the apostles had to be eyewitnesses of Christ. And more than that, they had to be personally endorsed or commissioned by Christ to be his apostles. Often in in sloppy language or just in fuzzy thinking, Apostle and disciples are used as synonyms, but they're not. Disciple is the large group of people that are being discipled, who are learners, who are following Christ. And at times, the crowds could be in the hundreds of disciples. It's out of that Christ chose a very select, a very narrow group of 12 apostles. Don't use them as synonyms. The 12 apostles are those who've been endorsed by Christ to be his witnesses with his authority. So Paul would write Galatians 1.1, I'm an apostle not sent from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, passive. I'm not self-appointed. God has appointed me. Christ appointed heralds, ambassadors, they're proxies of Christ, they're official spokesmen on his behalf, or if you will, the power of attorney. And then Christ gave his apostles the ability with unique gifts as authenticating credentials. Just as you hear a knock on the door and a policeman's standing there, he's supposed to show you his badge, his credentials. So too with the apostles, God gave them credentials the signs and wonders and miracles to authenticate the message that they have been sent from Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the things that mark the apostles, signs and wonders and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. Acts 2, 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Hebrews 2, 3, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The primary purpose of the miracles in the book of Acts and the the speaking in tongues and the, the miraculous healings were to authenticate the apostles as true messengers. They were their credentials. And so, as the apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ and personally endorsed, commissioned by him, they're unique. It's a once-for-all foundation laid for the church, and now the building is going up. Just as Christ's work in history was a once-for-all accomplishment of our salvation, he went to the cross to accomplish, past tense, one action, an atonement that is full and sufficient for all of God's people for all time. There's no more shedding of blood. And you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a past completed action. So too, the office of apostle is a one-time historical office and their ministry is unique. Their miracles are unique. It's not to be repeated. It's a foundation. Paul knew that he was the last of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. And so the second generation after the apostles, like the Timothy, the Titus, they're never called apostles. How often do you lay a foundation? (laughs) Once. 
And so there's no more new revelation after the apostles. God has finally spoken through his son, Jesus Christ, and confirmed this by the apostles. There's no new content. There's always going to be new illumination, new insights, new application. Absolutely. But not new content. And so the signs of the apostles have also ceased. We don't look for signs that accompanied the apostles. That historical age of the foundation has passed. And so to their credentials. The history of the New Testament records that the miraculous gifts were even dying out even before the death of the apostles themselves. The miraculous gifts are only mentioned in the early writings of the apostles, such as 1 Corinthians 12. The last recorded miracle in the New Testament occurs around A.D. 58, the healing of Publius' father, Acts 28. And for the next 42 years until John wrote the book of Revelation, there are no miracles recorded. Because it was a historical event. It was a historical credentials. In fact, 1 Corinthians is Paul's only book that mentions speaking in tongues. And yet he will go on to write another 12 books, never once mentioning speaking in tongues. And there is no other book written by any author after 1 Corinthians that mentions speaking in tongues. Because it's a historical office. So when we profess, I believe in Christ's apostolic church, first of all, we're meaning the apostles themselves, that historical, non-repeated foundation of Christ's church. But there must be more. You put a comma there. And I'm also professing, I believe, in the apostolic teaching. It's the apostolic teaching that we submit to as the faith These apostles that were appointed by Jesus Christ as his official ambassadors, it was through them that Christ, by the Holy Spirit, would remind them and lead them into all truth. And they would write these scriptures, and it's referred to as the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. Ephesians 3, 5, the mystery of Christ was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's apostles and prophets. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the church in Thessalonica were praised because they received the word of God, not from us, not the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. And so each generation is to guard the deposit that's been passed to them and hold on to obey the apostles' doctrine as the only standard of truth. We must never waver from it, 1 Timothy 1.13. You must guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you, 2 Timothy 1.14. So each generation doesn't reinvent theology. We receive. Theology is not progressive. It's not new to every generation. Christ told his disciples, go into all the world and teach them all that I have commanded you. Ritterboss put it, apostolic preaching is the foundation of the church, and the church is bound to it. This is why the reformers, such as Calvin and Luther, were very careful to show that their teachings were not only from Scripture, but they had been taught by the early church fathers. They were not starting a new church. Their teaching was true to apostolic teaching, even though it was at that time not true to the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Church had left the teaching of the apostles, so could not claim to be apostolic in any other sense. 
Luther and Calvin and the others weren't starting a new church. They were simply trying to rebuild the church upon the apostles' teachings because they professed and we professed. We believe in the apostolic church. Paul Atheus summarized Luther, quote, since the apostles are the foundations of the church, their authority is basic. No other authority can be equal to theirs. Every other authority in the church is derived from following the teaching of the apostles and is validated only by its conformity to their teaching. That's why in our denomination, ministers and elders are to be carefully vetted and examined. God will raise up men who are gifted and trained to know God's word and apostolic teaching and to teach it to the church. Doctrine is so important that it must be preserved, it must be passed down, because there will be a strict judgment of these men on Judgment Day, James 3.1. This is why we use the creeds in the church. What did the apostles teach on a matter? What does God's word say? Quote the Nicene Creed. Here's the Bible's teaching. Here's apostolic teaching to answer to the false teachers. To be apostolic means to profess the apostolic teaching, and we submit it to it as the faith. But it's more than just submitting to it. It's saying we believe that it is the final authority. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be proficiently, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything you need to know about God and life is plainly taught or can be plainly deduced from Scripture and Scripture alone. And what is Scripture? It's the writing of the apostles under the direction of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter would refer to the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches as Scripture. 2 Peter 3.15, equal to the Old Testament scripture, and they're to become part of the, the canon. And so the New Testament apostles laid claim to be obeyed. Their word was the final authority for the church for all time. Paul would write Philippians 4.9, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, put into practice. The church is called to obedience in everything, 2 Corinthians 2.9. And therefore, the the apostles' letters must be read in Christian worship the same way as the Old Testament books of Scripture, because they are Scripture. Our conscience is not autonomous, even though we might seek it to be. In Sunday school, we read, a man who trusts in his own mind's a fool. The Christian is to be directed and educated by scripture alone. You never live by your conscience alone. You never live by your opinions. You never live by your feelings as if you will always know what to do. These things cannot direct you clearly. You have to have a, a godly mistrust of conscience until it can be formed from scripture. The example, of course, is Luther's defense at the Diet of Worms. April 18th, 1521, there he is before the emperor and the nobles and the leaders of the church of the Holy Roman Empire, and he's being called to recant his teachings of justification by faith alone. 
And Luther responded, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident or plain manifest reasons, I cannot recant because my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Luther's saying, if you can show me from scripture why I'm wrong, I'll willingly recant. But if you can't show me from scripture that our salvation is by God's grace alone, by faith alone, that a person is forgiven fully from all of their sins because of the work of Jesus Christ alone, and you're declared pardoned, you're declared righteous by faith alone, if you can't show me that that is false from Scripture, I can't, I can't recant. Our conscience is not held captive by church councils or church tradition, but by God's word. And so he declared those famous words, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. And that's how the Reformation started, sola scriptura, the written scriptures, the apostolic inspired writings are our final authority for faith and practice and no person, no institution stands in judgment over God's word. Our only ultimate authority is the Holy Spirit speaking in scripture. Westminster Confession, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. To be apostolic, To hold to the apostles' writings, scriptures, as our final authority means it's not the Bible plus traditions of the church as equal authorities. Yes, we study tradition. Yes, we hold to the creeds and confessions. We value older generations. I love the commentaries and the books and sermon audio from other generations. But the Bible alone is our final authority and rule. We prove all things by scripture. That's why the Berean Christians were commended. They didn't even take the apostles' word for it, but measured even the apostle Paul's teaching. Acts 17.10, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's why the Bible was translated into the language of the people. That's why you have it today in English. It's a charter freedom for the people of God. The Bible is your final supreme authority in the church of Jesus Christ so that Quote, nothing can be rightfully imposed on the conscience of men as truth or duty which is not taught directly or by necessary implication in the Holy Scripture. End of quote, Hodge. To be apostolic, to hold to the teachings of the apostles, written scriptures means that it's not the Bible plus man-made rules that the church makes to help keep us from sin. The believer is protected from all forms of legalism and bondage of the conscience. And every believer has the right and should have the courage to say to any church leader, this policy, this new thing that you're asking us to do, where is it in Scripture? R.C. Sproul put it, quote, it's important to master the law of God. One of the great benefits of mastering the law is to know not only what we're not allowed to do, but also where God has left us free so that we can discern the difference between the law of God and the rules of men. You're to know God's word because that only is to guard your conscience and rule your conscience and rule the church. To be apostolic, to hold to the apostolic scriptures 
as our final authority means it's not the Bible plus charismatic experiences. If somebody would say to you, the Lord has revealed to me this about you and this is what you must do, that's not of God. That's tyranny. It's only when God the Holy Spirit opens up his book that he inspired to your heart and gives you an understanding. There it is, God speaking to you twice in his word. Unless evangelicals recover their confidence in the sufficiency of scripture, their claim that scripture alone is authoritative will remain empty. It will remain a charade. Wells. Do you think Paul reread his books like the book of Ephesians for his own quiet times and personal worship. And why not? It's scripture. That was the cry of the Reformation. Ad fontes, back to the source. All the reformers agreed on the apostolic teaching alone as the rule for the church, the written word of God. Yes, the shepherd will never abandon his sheep, but true sheep hear his voice and follow him. Do you see how the church Catholic and the church apostolic have to go together? The church Catholic, which God preserves through all time, is that church which holds to the apostolic teaching. And therefore the exhortation of Hebrews 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we professed for he who promised is faithful. The next time you recite the creed, say it with much more conviction and strength. I believe in Christ's Catholic Church. I believe in Christ's apostolic church. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, these things are so much bigger than us. They're huge. And they humble us. Why was I made to hear your voice and brought in to such a church when so many thousands of others have foolishly gone on in their darkness and rebellion? It's only your grace. And, oh, our Father, we pray that there would be a great ingathering again in our generation in this country. We see here it's getting darker, even while the Church of Jesus Christ is growing and expanding throughout other nations and continents of the world, how we pray for it to be again here. But thank you for our Good Shepherd, who has guaranteed that he will always have himself his flock. Cause us all to press on and hold unswervingly, only by your spirit, only by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.